Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 12th episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is, why do confrontations go bad so often? With me is David A. Harris. He's the author of A City Divided, Race, Fear, and the Law in Police Confrontations. David is a professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh's Law School. He's a leading national authority on racial profiling and the author of the groundbreaking 2002 book, Profiles in Injustice. He hosts the Criminal Injustice Podcast and has received the Jefferson Award for Public Service in 2015. Thank you, David, for joining me on the show. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to dig in. We've got a lot to talk about uh, when it's race, police, and so forth. Um, we'll, we'll be lucky to get through even half of what I'd love to talk about in the next 40 minutes. So let's just kind of uh, prime things for the listener. What in brief is the book about? The book begins with an incident that took place here in Pittsburgh, my hometown, 10 years ago in 2010 uh, in one of our high crime neighborhoods. Uh, a young man high school senior, just turned 18, honor roll student at our arts academy, left his house uh, on a very cold January night and uh, didn't get three houses down the block walking to his grandmother's house when uh, three police officers from Pittsburgh in plain clothes, unmarked car, and he were in a confrontation. And this turned ugly very, very fast. The police officers say they identified themselves as police and he ran and they knew he was armed. Uh, The young man says he never knew who the people were. They just got out of this dark car and started yelling about guns and drugs and money. Uh, The young man was badly injured. He was charged with felonies for trying to escape. Uh, And in the end, uh, this became a kind of epic struggle here in Pittsburgh, thus a city divided because the charges were dropped against the young man. The police were investigated. Uh, They were not charged criminally, uh, but the case went through two civil trials. Uh, My objective was not just to look at the legal angles here and what happened. I think anybody who reads the book will have a, 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 they'll be able to grasp the facts and decide for themselves what happened, who was telling the truth, did the police identify themselves or not. The much more important questions here are why this keeps happening all over the country every day. I mean, this young man did not die, so his voice is very much present in the book. Thank God he didn't die. Uh, and the whole thing is documented. But what we have to get a grip on is why this keeps happening, because there's very little difference except the young man's death between this incident and George Floyd in Minneapolis or so many other cases, uh, thousands of them since. And so the core of the book is an effort to get a grip on why this keeps happening and what we can do uh, 
to stop this phenomenon or at the very least make it a very, very rare occurrence. And there are things we can do. There are tested remedies that are out there, things that have been tried and succeeded. So that's where the book goes. Okay. And I do want to obviously go to those deeper issues and why this keeps happening and certainly the remedies. I did have just a question or two about the specifics in the book. And I happen to know the Homewood neighborhood because a friend of mine went to Carnegie Mellon and subsequently lived in Homewood for a bit. And I stayed there a couple of occasions. Mm -hmm. So I I know the neighborhood, um, not the safest place, as you alluded to earlier. One of the things, speaking of the truth that comes up in the book, is that the officers alleged that they, you know, treated him so badly because they were pretty sure he was armed. And the evidence was this supposed Mountain Dew soda bottle that was never discovered, never photographed, never, you know, fingerprinted, nothing of nothing, uh, yet somehow was the justification for the, uh, you know, violence, but short of death that actually occurred. Just a, a really dumb question, I suppose. As best I could tell from the book, there was no friends called to testify to the fact that the the kid David just didn't drink the stuff. Why um, not? Yeah, they had that he testified that he never did. And one of the other witnesses, a lady who lived next door, said, Well, if they found a Mountain Dew bottle, it's because of me. I drink the stuff all the time, <laughs> and it was probably in my garbage cans that they knocked over. But this was a central contention in the case. The officers uh seeing the young man out on the street. Uh, immediately came to the conclusion that he had a gun. They based this on the fact that he stood a certain way and his pocket seemed to be bulging. And of course, the fact that he ran and they were certain, they're still certain today that he had a gun, even though they searched him, no gun was found anywhere. They believe it to their dying day, as one of them said. And this uh, soda bottle that was supposedly found in his pocket, he says, well, I I just, I don't use that stuff. I never did. I hate it. Uh, And I didn't have a gun either. Uh, This really does show how the stories clashed. Uh, In court, the judges would only allow limited use of this evidence about the soda bottle. And so the jury only got to hear certain things about it. But they did hear that uh, that was what the police said was in the young man's pocket. And somehow the evidence was never preserved. Yeah, it seemed awfully suspicious, I have to say, that uh, you know this becomes a justification for the attack. But it does speak to fear, which certainly resides on both sides. We're going to come back to that. The other thing, just to say with one more specific detail from uh, the case itself, was there was a police chief named Nathan Harper yes. who had objected or, or suggested the officers had been wrong not to have tagged and photographed and held on to his evidence, this purported Mountain Dew soda bottle. Yet in the trial itself, uh, he suddenly said it wasn't a problem, that it wasn't tagged. Uh, I I couldn't believe that uh, there was nothing held against him for seemingly just changing his his testimony. Oh, it was pivotal. It was absolutely pivotal, Dan. You know, have the chief of police, when he was deposed, you know, in civil trials, people are deposed, they're subject to a deposition. And he gave a deposition under oath in which he said Uh, That was a violation of procedures and standards for the officers not to preserve that bottle and book it into evidence and those things. And it was a violation of policy. And then he gets on the stand and says exactly the opposite. Well, that's a moment that should have allowed the attorney for the young man, whose name is Jordan Miles, to just pounce on that former testimony and just 
tear that testimony to pieces by the chief of police. But it, there are really two big problems that show themselves here. That attorney was really kind of out of his depth. He had never tried a case like this. He didn't actually know how to do that maneuver. We call that impeaching the witness. He, he, he showed no skill with it at all. And they really should not have put him on the witness stand. That was designed to blow up, it looked like to me. And uh, the other side really took advantage of that. That To me, that was the moment that the trial turned against Jordan in favor of the police. And that's certainly how I read it, that the, the lawyer was shell-shocked that this was happening. Yes. Uh, didn't didn't allude that this was perjury uh, and didn't take any effective countermeasures and being so ill-prepared probably never should have gone there in the first place. Just maybe one last question. Did you attend any of the court proceedings yourself? And if you did, how did the the officers, including Nathan Harper, strike you on the stand? Were they smug with a sense that they were immune? Um, were they laughing? Were they kind of uh, you know dismissive of all this? Were they frightened, or or you don't have any firsthand evidence? Well, they were not smug, and they didn't laugh. Uh, you have to remember that police officers, by the time they get into the ranks and they've been on the job for four, five, six years, they've not only received training in the police academy and how to testify, but they've done it. They are almost professional witnesses. They really know what it feels like. They're not intimidated by their surroundings. Uh, they're not intimidated by the fact that there's a judge there or a jury there. They're much different than any other kind of civilian witness. Now, this is a different sort of thing. Uh, it's a civil trial, so they're not they're not being tried for crimes, but they are being accused. So it's their own skin on the line, so to speak. Um, but still, the way that they pre they present themselves very professionally, almost coolly, uh, you didn't find them losing their tempers, really. Uh, a lawyer is rarely going to be able to just destroy them the way we see on TV or in the movies. I mean, that's a TV thing. It generally doesn't happen anyway. But for police, they're just too solid for that. So what you saw as they testified was basically a pretty polished and professional performance um, uh, even when, uh, like with chief Harper, he was basically saying the opposite of what he said before under oath. Okay. That makes sense. Cause the way I read, you know, your, your account of things, it seemed like he was pretty breezily calm about this, you know, pivoting in his testimony. Oh yeah. So, yeah. So let's go on. So certainly one of the mm -hmm. many reasons why I, I wanted you to have you on the show and, and your expertise is I am indeed from Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, the site of the George Floyd killing. And just this week, uh, just within the last couple of days, in fact, the Minnesota legislature passed a new law. Uh, I don't think it's signed yet by the governor. I'm not sure what other machinations they have to go through. But uh, I wanted to offer you a, a quick summary. There are eight key provisions, I yes. believe, to the law. And I'll read them once. I'll read them even twice for you if you need to. I'd be curious to know which of these you think are really solid, good moves and which strike you as, frankly, a little toothless or misguided or just not going far enough. So it sounds like you're going to know these, but I'll, I'll read them off to you just the same uh, to, on behalf of the listener. One, ban on chokeholds and neck restraints. I think Number that's a two. good. I think that's a good thing. You want me to comment okay. on, this, on them as we go along? I'm sorry. Okay, sure. Uh, I think it's a good thing. 
Um, the ban on chokeholds and neck restraints is, is generally good. We can see how dangerous they are, not through George Floyd's case, but also Eric Garner in Stanton Island, who was chokeholded yep. to death too. Um, as I read that and I looked at it in detail yesterday, um, it allows for those to be used in a life or death situation. And that little loophole is not little. Um, so, uh, I think this is a good first step. It probably doesn't go quite far enough to actually ban them. Okay. Yes. Because it, every situation could be construed as life or death. Uh, I suspect based on, uh, how you've depicted some things in the books. Uh, I also should probably say that I have a brother-in-law who's a former traffic cop in King County, which mm-hmm. is Seattle. Um, so I, I am aware of, you know, an alternative perspective on this, uh, from him. The second one, a prohibition on quote unquote, warrior style training for officers. Oh, I think this is a good thing, Dan. Um, I focused on the warrior culture in the book, as you know, um, because it's all about overcoming the great fear that is inculcated in officers through their training through this idea that the that the officer is a warrior and is willing and able to use what they call righteous violence in order to fend off all the bloodthirsty wolves and predators that are basically everywhere. Uh, This training is a kind of poison that seeped its way into policing over the last 20 years, largely through private trainings for officers who are already on the job and books and videos and so forth. But it has sort of pervaded uh, police departments and police uh, culture. And that's just got to go. It's got to go. That That kind of training has to be prohibited. Yeah, that seems to me really speaking to the culture of what's going on here, a, a sense of a, uh, an occupation of hostile territory instead of guarding a community. Um, well, that's right. That's right. When you're in a war, a uh, certain level of casualties are expected. Uh, collateral damage is acceptable. Uh, you're out there to kill your enemy. Uh, and that's just not policing at all. That's not what policing should be. Uh, and, and that's, that's part of what makes it very dangerous. I understand why it's appealing. It gives a sense of camaraderie and belonging and, you know, we're, we're, we're all under fire together, but, man, that is not what policing is. Yeah. In fact, my, my company was once hired to help San Bernardino, uh, police force to hire officers who would be more emotionally sensitive, uh, to the community and, uh, you know, there was no follow-up. I don't know how the initiative went, but that was our role was to try to screen new recruits that they were looking at at the time to, to bolster EQ levels. Third one in Minneapolis, St. Paul, or Minnesota in general, enhancing data collection around deadly force encounters. Always, always a good idea. I mean, I'm sort of always struck at how little data is collected about deadly force encounters and so many other things in law enforcement. I want to know why they, you know, how, how could they not be doing that? This is one of the most consequential things that can happen in policing. How do you not have all the data that you can possibly get? How are you not systematizing it? How are we not able to make apples to apples comparisons? So whether it goes far enough, I don't know. It depends on what data they will require, but the fact that they're at least going down that road is a good thing. Okay. Next one, require officers to intervene. I suspect this is because uh, the other three officers, uh, not the instrumental one, were, were quite junior to the force and ended up taking the, following the lead, even though the, one of them slightly tried to intervene. 
Yes. Oh, this is this is crucial. Um, lots of police forces are looking at this now in the wake of the George Floyd case, but it's not a new problem. This sort of brings us back to the idea that it's a culture of of us against them in so many police departments. The only people you can trust are other police officers. They're the only ones who understand the job, and therefore we don't we don't call each other out. And this is very, very bad for the entire culture. You have no accountability in a case like this. And when officers do call out others for misconduct or something, uh, they often face very bad consequences. So this is very important, but I want to say it won't be easy. It won't be easy. Uh, you don't have to look very far in the media to find lots of stories about a police officer who did this and ended up uh, getting terminated him or herself. Um, one of the successful programs in this area uh, is the EPIC program, E-P-I-C, which I think stands for Ethical Policing um, um, is, is, uh, or something, something like that. Yeah. Um, and it's been instituted in the new Orleans police department and some other places. It depends on not only giving the officer the duty to intervene and then report, but protecting that officer who makes that choice. And that's of course been the missing piece. Well, here in Minneapolis, um, you know, the, we have a police chief who is African-American black and, uh, from what I've now seen, apparently his job might be at stake because he has, he has stepped out. <laughs> yes, say, he has. These, these have been issues in the past. I've actually filed about them. Uh, I know about them intimately, and we do need to make progress. And between him and Bob Crow, who runs the police union, mm-hmm. uh, there is no love lost, I'm sure. That's true. Uh, the the next one, a state unit to investigate such cases. Very good idea. Very good idea. Um, the, the usual thing in any uh, crime in which force is used would be the in Minneapolis, say, the Minneapolis police would investigate and hand the, the case over to the state district attorney for that county. Um, that presents a conflict of interest, uh, uh, maybe not in the most literal sense, but the, the district attorney or state's attorney, the prosecutor in the jurisdiction works with that police force hand in glove every day. And so to have that district attorney be in charge of prosecuting a police officer in a case of use of force, um, that it almost invites uh, uh, treatment and, and investigation uh, that no citizen would get the advantage of. So this is not this is something that's been coming in other jurisdictions for a long time to either create an outside unit to investigate those kinds of issues or to automatically have the uh, investigation move to another unrelated police department or into the state attorney general's office, which is what happened in the uh, Floyd case. It was moved to the attorney general's office. But this would create a separate unit for that. And I think it's a good idea. Yeah, I know in Georgia with the jogger who was killed, you know, nothing right. happened in part because you know the first jurisdiction was very local, very hand in glove, as you said, mm-hmm. and uh, nothing was going to happen. Uh, we got three more. I don't want to lose a whole lot of time, so I'm just going to give you those last three, and maybe you can pick one you want to comment on because I want to get to so many other things as well. Uh, crisis intervention training was one. A panel of expert arbitrators to handle misconduct cases was another and incentives for officers to live in the communities they police is the third. Any one of those three you want to comment on? Uh, Those are all important. Like you said, I think the one that sticks out is the arbitration piece. It's very technical, but it's part of why so many officers who get fired 
end up in binding arbitration brought by their union and end up back on the job. That process must change if we're to have better policing. I, I looked at that provision yesterday and I don't think it goes far enough. Okay. The the last one that was raised there is something that comes up in a manner of speaking in your book, because now I want to turn to the fact that you had, I'm pretty sure it was 10 uh, major suggestions that should be addressed. Maybe some of them were in the Minnesota legislature. But one I really loved was the idea that they should know the community better, so that in the training in the academy, there were actually members of the community that would be, you know, where they'd be serving their patrols, who would actually come in, give them a sense of flavor of it. Uh, furthermore, that they would do some uh, volunteer work, if I understood correctly, like in a nonprofit mm-hmm. center uh, that would even be ongoing once they became an officer. That seemed to me so good in terms of getting to know each other, trying to get past stereotypes and fear, uh, just you know, trying to understand the community you're going to be in. Uh, so I absolutely love that one, and it doesn't cost any money, especially. No, that's um, true. It, it seems hard for me to see how anyone could object, and I really love that. But I want to give you a chance here to uh, broaden into your list of 10 and see where you want to go on that. Well, I think that is a very crucial piece. Uh, policing uh, in many places has become a thing apart from the community. The, pol- the police are only seen when people are sort of at their worst. They've had a tragedy or they're having a crisis of some kind, something bad has happened to them and the police kind of roll in and nobody knows who they are. And they, you know, you don't really see them on a daily basis except as rolling by uh, in a car. And uh, the, the idea of community-based policing is to have real relationships and connections. Uh, if you don't start with that, you're really, uh, you're, you're really at loose ends. You don't have the information you need. You don't have the relationships you need. People shortchange the idea of relationships in policing uh, because they think the police uh, can or should do it all. And if they don't have relationships with the people in the neighborhood, they can't tell which of the 10 kids uh, who are hanging on the corner uh, might be actually in trouble or a danger and which of the other nine are just hanging out. Um, and they won't have the relationships necessary to talk to people when a crime is committed and to get information. So it simply could not be more important at a moment like this. Yeah, no, that was of interest to me in part because I just saw on Frontline, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, uh, an episode where someone went along with Newark, New Jersey uh, cops on the beat. Uh, which actually meant in the car. Uh, And I know the city well. I actually worked in Newark for about three years in my career. Uh, And there was a scene that was pretty chilling. It reminded me of your book where they jump out of the car at one point. They start really going after a a guy who's just walking down the street. It's like, what are you doing to me? Um, But they just concluded he was a suspect. And in fact, nothing was happening. He wasn't armed. He wasn't, uh, you know, on drugs. There There was no basis for doing anything of anything. So this takes me into where I really want to dig deep. And that is, you know, this is a show about EQ and there are a whole lot of emotions going on here. Your book, you know, directly alludes to one of them by invoking fear. Uh, But I just wanted to touch on some dynamics and then let you really take it where you want to, uh, given your expertise. So I think the one we have to start with, of course, is fear and anger, which strangely enough, and most people might not think of this, but they're both related to a sense that you are not in control of a situation. You can be fearful and feel like the danger's bigger than you, or you can feel that fear and decide you're going to try to control it by exercising anger. 
So what might you want to say with your you know, deeper insights on that dynamic as applied to urban environments and to the police and justice? Yeah. Well, fear is a key component. I mean, there's sort of, when I ask the question, why, why does this keep happening? I identify two really twin poisons. I would think of them race and fear. And when we talk about fear, uh, I think a lot of people would probably initially understand that as, oh, of course, African-Americans fearing the police. And certainly they do. And we should talk about that, too. But what people sometimes don't realize is what 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 a role fear plays on the police side. And I, I think, you know, some of my friends in law enforcement, uh, my people who are not so friendly, maybe might find this offensive, this idea that I'm talking about fear in policing. Uh, don't I understand that police officers are generally brave? I, I definitely understand that. I mean, as, as former President Obama used to say, uh, these are the people who run toward the danger while the rest of us run away. Um, but what has happened in police training and culture over the last 20 to 25 years is that the training and the culture amps up the fear element really increases it by teaching number one, that every encounter, not just the very small number of actual encounters that end up badly, but every encounter with a civilian has the potential to be deadly, to get you killed. Every traffic stop, every conversation, you could be dead. And that attitude that this is what you have to guard against all the time, it, I mean, that's fear itself right there. You combine that um, with uh, the way that they want to meet it which is through this warrior idea that we were talking about before. How do you deal with this fear that's ever present? Um, you become a warrior because warrior is part of the picture, but you overcome it by having the capacity to act with righteous violence at any time. Other things that amp up that fear is the use of video. Now, we're, we're all accustomed now to seeing lots of cell phone video and viral video. And of course, the video of George Floyd uh, came from that 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 technology uh, and it has really impacted people. But for police and police training, uh, they are looking at a different set of videos. There's a kind of library of death out there that is used in police trainings. That is, they're basically dash cam uh, videos taken from police cars where they show a police officer getting shot, getting assaulted, getting stabbed, getting murdered right in front of the camera. Uh, thankfully, like I said, this, this is a vanishingly small number of cases, but it does happen. But these videos are picked out and inserted into police training, sometimes very early in the academy. And they're there not just to teach, oh, well, here's a tactical mistake, but to show young officers, look, this is what you're up against. This is the world. Now, of course, you know, we know that there are millions and millions of videos for every one of these in which everything goes fine or the officer talks somebody down or everything is solved, but they don't show those. They show this sort of library of killings and it has the effect of amping up fear incredibly. You add to this, the ubiquitous presence of guns in the United States Yep. And, and officers Absolutely. simply cannot ignore that. I mean, there's no other police force in the world, a uh, set of police forces, I should say, that is like the United States in the sense that they have to think about the presence of a gun every time they talk to a civilian because there are so many guns in this country. Put all that together 
And there's your culture of fear. And I'm not taking away from their bravery and their courage. I'm just saying fear is with them all the time. And this is only one half of any police encounter. You look at the other side, what a civilian, but particularly a person of color, feels confronting a police officer. Uh, And it's understandable why those folks are afraid. They've seen all the videos from George Floyd on back, and they've heard the stories from the time they were little kids of father, brother, grandfather. They have their own experiences of having guns pulled on them and being talked to in demeaning ways and discriminated against. I don't mean every police officer does this. I simply mean these things are common enough that it's kind of a universal experience among black people. When they call the police, not me, but when they call the police, uh, when a car gets stolen, they're as likely to end up in handcuffs as, as, as the, you know, the person who stole the car, when they call the police to report that their homes have been burglarized, it might be their kids who end up on the floor with guns pointed at them. And those experiences just lead African-Americans to know that they just live in a different country when it comes to police and they do fear. Yeah. And fear is not a good lubricant for communication. I mean, oh my God, worst possible thing. It's survival. I mean, worst possible uh, thing. Yeah. Uh, You know, certainly I know, you know, my brother in law, every time he had to approach a stopped motorist, he did not know how that person was going to respond. You know, if colleagues of his who were in other forces, you know, went through a door into a a building, they didn't know what was going to be on the other side of that door. So, yes, I, I agree with you. I'm not trying to take away from the, the stress, the bravery, the courage that's required. Uh, but at the same time, uh, fear that gets kind of, I won't say papered over because it's much more severe than that, but gets addressed through we're going to be aggressive uh, as a recourse to almost escape that fear does not strike me as a, as a good outcome. Um, there was one other dynamic I wanted to get to just on the police side that I want to switch to the black community even more fully than what you were already, uh, very correctly identifying. One is I have a concern, but I don't have the data. My instinct, and one of the reasons I was asking about the officers, uh, in court is it seems to me that there's a real risk of not just the anger fear dynamic, but also sadly one of contempt for the black community as opposed to admiration and trust. And I raise this in part because I many years ago wrote a book on American festivals, and the epilogue was the Afro-Caribbean Festival mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. And I got there way early in the morning. Uh, I think all the cops, frankly, thought that I was like a German tourist or something with my notebook <laughs> and my camera. Uh, and they, they did not hide anything. I could overhear all of their conversations. They were all based in Long Island, and they were you know, profoundly racist uh, in their comments almost to an officer. And uh, there was no respect or trust or certainly admiration there. So I'm, I'm just concerned knowing how corrosive an emotion contempt is that you see the other party as beneath you is how that might also feed into this dynamic. Oh, it's very much a part of the problem. Uh, and I'll give you a data-based example. Uh, Jennifer Eberhardt, who is one of the leading social psychologists, MacArthur Grant winner, Stanford professor led a very interesting study uh, of the Oakland Police Department that's fairly recent. It's in the last couple of years. You know, we've now had police body cameras for, you know, four or five years, depending on the police department. And Oakland has them. 
And Oakland was interested in improving its performance, especially vis-a-vis race. It's a city with a a large African-American population and actually a fair number of African-American police officers. They gave uh, Professor Eberhardt and her team access to body camera footage from thousands, I think, of traffic stops. And uh, Professor Eberhardt was able to break down these videos and code them uh, so they could be studied. Uh, to look for terminology, stance, all kinds of indicators of communication. And what they concluded was that holding everything constant, type of stop, nature of offense, all those things, uh, all police officers, not just white officers, but all police officers talked to black motorists with significantly measurably less respect than they did white motorists. Um, The terms they use, the way that they talk to them, everything. And so this is really a deep kind of a problem. Uh, She's come up with a good solution for them in that that context of traffic stops, which we'd have to, I guess, have another show about. But (laughs) um, but the, the, the personal attitudes of people, whether it's just basic racism or just contempt for circumstances, um, makes a huge difference in how you communicate and how you interface with people. Yeah, because in your book, I mean, the incident goes badly, I mean, right away. I mean, they, they jump out on the person. But it strikes me in other situations, even if it doesn't go to, you know, aggression, assault right away, there is an attitude that could be set up and leads me to my question, I guess, regarding the black community, because now let's imagine you're the boy in this case. Let's imagine you know, a more favorable situation where he wasn't immediately attacked. Let's just say they come up and the the questioning is hostile in the nature of, you know, where's the drugs and the gun and so forth that they apparently shouted out before they jumped him. What do you do when you feel humiliated uh, by the treatment, the attitude you're getting, yet, you know, let's say you don't have a gun, but the officer does, how are you going to navigate feeling humiliated and yet trying to stand up for yourself, but not stand up for yourself so much that you're going to get into trouble. That that seems like a really tough thing to pull off. And yet civilians don't get trained. I mean, police officers go through training. A civilian doesn't get trained for this. And yet it seems to me to require incredible emotional agility to handle that situation. Oh, Dan, there are so many layers to that. that that's such a great question. You know, um, <clears throat> uh, one of the things that uh, Chief Harper said on the day that he put the officers back onto duty uh, and restored them to the streets was that this was all Jordan's fault. All he had to do was answer the police officer's questions and he would have just been able to go on his way. He shouldn't have run. It was all on him. Um, And it really seems to me uh, blind to the realities of the moment. Even if you take the police story exactly as, as true, exactly as they told it in their report, in the entire report, I've reproduced it in the book, that they stopped him, they were polite, they were asking him questions, and he just decided to run for reasons that they can't understand, and they knew he had a gun, so that must be the reason. Um, the questions they were asking uh, obviously implied that he was doing something wrong. And if you put him in that situation, obviously he denies it. He says it didn't happen that way. 
But if you put him, a young black man in that situation, what does that person know? He knows here are a bunch of cops. They have guns. They sometimes mistreat people. They may have not mistreated me, but I've certainly heard, heard the stories. So my behaving perfectly doesn't make me safe. Doesn't mean I'm going to come out of this okay. The chief is just basically wrong about that. He is discounting and erasing the experience of, of an entire group of people. Um, uh, on top of that, um, he has been told by his mother, always be respectful of the police. And as most uh, young black people are, they're told by their parents, this is a survival situation. You must be careful. You must answer all questions they ask. You must say yes, sir, or no, ma'am. Uh, keep, you know, if it's a traffic stop, you keep your hands visible. You don't talk back. I don't care what he says to you or what name he calls you. They're just, you know, this is a situation of survival. That's the difficult and, and, and really dangerous point. Because, you know, if you're an 18 year old, a 16 year old, you want to stand up for yourself. You want to show that you're a, a, an adult. Um, but you know, you don't have a lot of good choices. You know, your, your parents, like Jordan's parents have told him, you be careful, you do this, you do that, you get home and then we can make a complaint if we have to. On the other hand, if, if, if you feel in danger, you know, just complying is not going to keep you safe. So it is one of the worst situations that a young person could find themselves in. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'm going to go back to the officers maybe one last time here uh, before we, we run out of time. There is something, of course, called the implicit association test, which mm -hmm. has been used uh, and it identifies that majority of, of whites, and this would fit with a book I read called uh, American Apartheid about you know separate housing in America based on race. But uh, I think it was in your book, it said about 88% of whites tend to show a you know, slight to market preference for white people uh, and blacks, even 40% of blacks based in part on what's happened historically in the culture and the privileging of whites uh, have that same preference. What's to keep us from possibly using the implicit association test as one of the measures in hiring officers? Why would we want someone who shows an extreme market preference for whites and discounts the humanity of black people? You're absolutely right that that's what the test results showed, not for individual people, but overall over millions mm -hmm. and millions of test administrations. Um, the, it's a, it's a, a damning indictment of our culture and our country. But the thing is, and the test uh, people have conceded this uh, at long last, even having a result. And when you take that test, by the way, as I have and as many people do, you actually get a reading on yourself. Right. So we could give that to pol potential police recruits and we would get, you know, their their mild, medium or strong preference for white or black. But you cannot tell from that how a person will act in any given situation. situation. It, OK, because sure. the situation controls the social term, the social situation is all important. And you could have a person who shows this kind of preference for white, but knows the ropes of policing and knows how to operate. So I would fall back much more on teaching people the right way to act, the right way to do the job. And then I would watch them carefully in their first years to see if they're able to do that. If they don't show they can do it, they belong in another job. They need a much longer probationary period and they need close supervision. 
Yeah, no, in fact, there was an article in the New York Times from a, a black cop in Virginia just recently. And yeah, suggested I saw that. that. Mm-hmm. The probation period should be more like three years because it's quite difficult to remove an officer uh, if they start to show a oh, uh, boy. You know, disturbing pattern. Mm-hmm. One last question before we, we run out of time here, uh, and I'll just have to show my naivete. Uh, I know about, because I've actually done some work on jury consulting based on my specialty of facial coding, uh, but I was struck in this book by the fact that I, I know there's a substantial black community in Pittsburgh. I've been in the city many times, and yet I believe in only one of the three trials that Jordan went through was there even a single African-American in the jury. It just seems to me fundamentally wrong that when it's supposed to be a jury of your peers, that you could get to a point where it does not reflect the racial makeup of the community. Um, is there any efforts underway to to change that? Is there some angle that I'm missing here? It just strikes me as a fundamental injustice built into the system that the lawyers can, can maneuver it that way. Well, it's true. Um, here's one thing to take into consideration. Jordan's trials, and there were two, uh, both took place in federal court. If he had been tried, if those cases had been tried in a an Allegheny County, Pennsylvania court, chances are pretty good we w- might have had a more diverse jury. But when okay. you look at federal court, federal courts are divided into districts. So we're in the Western District of Pennsylvania, which is Pittsburgh and 25 surrounding Western Pennsylvania counties. So they're going to draw the jury pool from that entire area. And once you get outside of Pittsburgh, it is a lot less diverse around here. And even Pittsburgh is not as diverse as maybe it could be. Um, so that's that really lessens the chance that you're going to end up with uh, a lot of diversity on a jury panel around here if you're in federal court. Okay, I, I understand that. Uh, well, as I said at the beginning, uh, this is probably a topic we can go on for two hours, uh, but I do need to pull this in and wrap it up. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you very much for being my guest. Oh, it's on been my Dan- pleasure. Thank you. On Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, uh, this has been episode 12 with my wonderful guest, David A. Harris. He is the author of A City Divided, Race, Fear, and the Law in Police Confrontations. To check out other episodes or my books or other activities, including my appearances on other people's podcasts, feel free to visit my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for David, email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you've enjoyed today's show, by all means, feel free to give it a five-star rating or review or whatever kind of rating you think makes sense. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. As we've been talking about fear in no small part here today, I'm going to end with a quote from Bertrand Russell, who said, fear is the main source of superstition and one of the main sources of cruelty. To conquer fear is beginning of wisdom. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. (laughs) 